Strangers, the spring merch is almost gone. You have until May 7th to get your strange merch. Me, I'm getting at least one of everything, but mostly a whole stack of stickers to blast around my neighborhood. Rhode Island is not going to know what hit it until it goes, huh, I wonder what that is, and then Googles it, and they too become obsessed with the show and the beautiful merch. Celebrate your impeccable taste in podcasts today with this very limited run of sweatshirts, t-shirts, pencil cases, mugs, and more. And don't forget to log on to our socials and post pictures of you sporting the merch and supporting the show. To get your strange merch, go to strangeandunexplainedpod.com slash merch today. Hurry, you only have until May 7th. Get yours now. Do we ever really know someone? These days, with search engines at our fingertips and background checks readily available, it's much easier to find out ahead of time if that guy you met on Bumble is actually an investment banker or if he's a murderer. Although, frankly, I'm not sure which is worse. Up until recently, meeting a potential romantic partner could be a real roll of the dice. You really couldn't know their past if they chose not to share it. And if they did, there was no real way of knowing if they were being honest. And even if that person came with a very questionable past, a simple name change was all it took to erase any kind of potential strike against them. Now, everything is in the perma-memory of the cloud, but it was not so long ago that someone could walk away from their past and invent something totally new for themselves and no one would be any the wiser. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who urges everyone to do a background check on anyone they invite into their lives intimately and practice this simple phrase just in case. I want to get a divorce. Trust me, it may be hard to say, but it definitely beats the alternative. This week, we have an exciting and also pretty sad update on a topic we covered in Season 1. On July 26, 1974, a woman was found dead in the dunes of Race Point Beach on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. She was nude, lying on a beach towel from a nearby hotel. Her hands had been removed, her head was nearly completely severed and resting on a pair of neatly folded jeans. Despite a pretty thorough search of nearby establishments, homes, and vehicles, and after reviewing thousands of reports of missing women, detectives on the case found nothing. No clue as to who this woman was, who had killed her, or why or how. She was dubbed the Lady of the Dunes, and although she was exhumed a number of times, no useful clues were gathered. And while they had no real clues or evidence, there were some wild theories as to who she was or who might have killed her. From the theory that she'd been a victim of the infamous Whitey Bulger, who was rumored to have been bisexual and hung out at nearby gay bars, to one blogger who was convinced she had been an extra in a crowd scene in Jaws. Though beyond that, of course, he couldn't say how she ended up dead on the beach shortly thereafter. When I ended the episode on the Lady of the Dunes, I ended with this. To this day, the identity of the woman and her killer are still a mystery. It is possible with advancement in DNA technology that more clues could be extracted. 
On October 31, 2022, a joint press conference was held by the FBI's Boston Division, Massachusetts State Police, Provincetown Police, Cape and Islands District Attorney, and the first Assistant U.S. Attorney. Joe Bonavolanta, special agent in charge of the FBI division, announced that after half a century of unanswered questions, they were finally able to identify the woman they'd found on the beach all those years ago. Her name was Ruth Marie Terry. She was 37 at the time of her death. Ruth had finally been identified using the same method police had used to identify the Golden State Killer, as well as, more recently, the man who killed four University of Idaho students in November of 2022. Using investigative genealogy, the team was able to whittle down the possibilities by tracking down close DNA relatives with the DNA samples they'd gotten from Ruth's body. The DNA they did get, though, was in bad shape. Not only had it been degraded by so many years of just sitting there, it was also contaminated with chemicals used in preserving her body, as well as microbial DNA. But modern science is basically magic, and despite the degraded state of the DNA, the folks over at Othram Labs in Texas were able to build a DNA profile of the woman, and police were then able to track down her closest relative. The relative was Ruth's son, Richard Hanchett. And how, you might be asking yourself, stranger, did Hanchett not know his own mother was missing? Back in the 70s, when national papers were looking for any information on her, why didn't Hanchett come forward and say, you know, my mom's been missing for a bit, and she looked an awful lot like what you've described here? True, Ruth's face had been obscured by the brutal beating that likely killed her, but police had been able to come up with an idea of what she might have looked like based on what they did know. And there were people who came forward to say she might have been their long-lost sister or daughter, but not Richard Hanchett. That's because Richard Hanchett had no idea his mother was missing. And here begins the second tragic act of this story. Ruth Marie Terry was born in Whitwell, Tennessee in 1936. Her father, John, worked in the coal mines, and her mother, Ava Louise Keener, died from epilepsy when she was just 27 years old, only a year after Ruth was born. And although John remarried, according to Ruth's half-brother, Ken, Ruth was largely raised by her grandparents. That is, until, Ken said, Ruth got married at a very, very young age. In a phone interview he gave to the Provincetown Independent in December 2022, Ken said that Ruth married a Korean War vet named Billy Ray Smith when she was just 13 years old. It is, by the way, an immutable law of being from the South that if your first name is Billy, your middle name must be Ray. So it is, and so it shall be, forever and ever. Amen. Now, do you remember what you were like when you were 13? I was just starting to smoke cigarettes and drinking too much rum at my best friend Carrie's New Year's Eve party and passing out before midnight and waking up at three and wondering why everyone was asleep when I was ready to partay and generally wandering around with my head up my ass. When I wasn't busy crank calling boys in my class and making music videos to the cranberries in my friend's kitchen. I got married when I was 23 and even that was way too young. 13, my good gravy boat. 
Ken said that Ruth and Billy Ray Cyrus, or I mean Smith, got divorced and then remarried when she was 20 and divorced again by the time Ruth left Tennessee around 1956 or 57. It might be that Ruth's half-brother Ken wasn't quite remembering things right, though. Apparently, Ruth's official marriage record has her marrying Billy Ray only once when she was 20. At any rate, Ruth left Billy Ray but kept the last name Smith and was living in Michigan and working at a car parts manufacturer by 1957. Ruth worked alongside Richard Sr. and Selma Hanchett and their adult daughter, Pat. To be fair, I don't know that Pat was an adult. I don't know how old she was, but I'd like to assume that by the late 50s, children weren't working in factories or anywhere. Then again, apparently children are still working in factories in this country to this day. So, anyway, Ruth got pregnant sometime shortly after moving to Michigan. And fun fact, being a single mother is really hard. And she knew that Richard Sr. and Selma had been thinking about adopting. So they made a deal. The Hanchets would pay for Ruth's expenses and adopt her baby. According to Richard Jr., his adopted parents rented a house for Ruth for the second half of her pregnancy and paid for all the pregnancy-related costs. And on the day Ruth went into labor, Selma gave her her ID. Apparently, they both had red hair and blue eyes, so she could check in under Selma's name. Apparently, this was back in the day when you could just waltz into any hospital as long as you had some form of ID and give birth. Now, no matter how far that baby might be down the old birthing canal, they're going to need your social security number, the name of 20 relatives to track down just in case you can't pay, your political party affiliation, and your employment status. Anyway, the plan worked, I guess, because the Hanchets took baby Richard and the recently postpartum Terry hightailed it out of there to California. Now, as an adult, Richard understands why his birth mother made the choices she did. She was single, worked in a factory, and came from poverty. She knew she wouldn't be able to provide a good life for a child. And, I would imagine, once she handed him over, she didn't particularly want to stick around and be reminded every day of the child she couldn't keep. But, back when Richard learned the truth about his birth mother as a young man, he wasn't so understanding. According to a piece in the New York Times from November 3rd, 2022, quote, Mr. Hanchett said that Ms. Terry had tried to contact him once when he was about 13, but he rejected her overture, which he deeply regrets, end quote. However, according to a piece from the Provincetown Journal from December 1st, 2022, quote, He said Ruth reached out to him when he was about 14 in 1972, but he was in the hospital because of a drug overdose that left him in a coma for 18 days. Afterward, he said he began to change his life for the better, end quote. I couldn't find any more information about this incident, so I don't know what precipitated it, but clearly things weren't going great for Richard at that point. I just don't know what exactly was happening. Other than that one phone call to her biological son, however, not much is known about Ruth between when she left for California in 1958 and when she next appears in records in 1974, which we'll get to. But Pat Hanchett, Richard's older sister, told him she had kept in touch with Ruth up until the mid-1970s. 
Unfortunately, Richard didn't know much more than that, and Pat isn't available to ask because in 1980, she was murdered by her husband. Honestly, this story is one tragedy after another squished into one big tragic sandwich. According to Ruth's nephew, Jim Terry, Ruth moved back to Tennessee in the 70s. In 1974, Ruth married a man named Guy Moldavin. According to the Boston Globe, she married him using the name Terry Marie Vizina, which was apparently, quote, one of several names authorities said Ruth Marie Terry went by, end quote. What? Why? Why was she using several different names? Also, how do authorities know this? This seems like a huge piece of information to just casually drop in a piece without follow-up. Like, don't people usually use aliases because they're on the lam or whatever? What was going on in Ruth Terry's life that she got married under an alias? Whatever the reason for the alias might have been, according to the Chattanooga Times Free Press in a piece from November 4th, 2022, Ruth's nephew Jim remembers the last time he saw her was in March 1974 at his sister's house across the street from his in Whitwell when she came to visit the family in Tennessee with her new husband, Guy Rockwell Moldavin. She was 37. Ruth's half-brother Ken also remembers a visit from Ruth in 1974. He remembers she was newly married, but as he told the Provincetown Journal, he doesn't remember Guy at all. Oddly, though, according to the November 3, 2022 piece in the New York Times, quote, Ms. Terry's nephew, Jim Terry, said that the last time he had seen Ms. Terry was in July or August of 1973 in a motel room in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with Mr. Moldavin. His mother thought she was going to California, and his father thought she was headed up north, Mr. Terry said, end quote. And look, I get it that memories corrode over time, but... Presumably, Jim gave these two interviews relatively close together. His aunt had only been identified on October 31st, after all. So why his story changed from July or August of 1973 in a motel room to March of 74 at his sister's house within the span of two articles printed a day apart, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not accusing Jim, who was 12 at the time, of anything nefarious. I just think it's important to note that even when we think we're getting the facts, we may not always be getting the facts. As far as Jim knows, whether it was March of 74 or summer of 73, that was the last time anyone in the family saw Ruth. And then, on July 26, 1974, the Lady of the Dunes was found dead in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Shortly after Ruth's unidentified body was found and dubbed the Lady of the Dunes, according to Ruth's great-niece, Brittany Novanglosky, Moldavin called Ruth's father and said that Ruth had joined a cult and moved out of state, and that he, Moldavin, had sold or gotten rid of all of her stuff. That's... Not a red flag at all. But I guess Ruth's family had been expecting a visit from Ruth sometime that year because when she failed to show up, her brother, James, went out to California to look for her. 
According to Richard, Ruth's biological son, James confronted Moldavin, who shrugged it off by saying she was a free spirit. Okay, Bob. Ruth's family apparently never stopped searching for her. They even hired a PI in California, and her sister Marilyn searched genealogy websites hoping to find her. The DA of the area in which Ruth's body had been found said, quote, There was no information to suggest that Ms. Terry had ever been reported to the authorities as a missing person, end quote. Which is nuts to me. Why her family never reported her as missing is seriously strange and unexplained. Like, just because some jabroni she's married to says she went and joined some cult doesn't mean you shouldn't file a missing persons report. And, of course, because no one filed a missing persons report, when police in Massachusetts were trying to identify the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth's name never came up. Of course, this also means that no one in Ruth's family ever saw any news about the Lady of the Dunes. Perhaps if they had, they might have been able to solve this mystery right away. I suppose back in 1974, an unidentified missing person in Providence Town, Massachusetts, didn't make it to headline news in Whitwell, Tennessee. Once Ruth's family stopped hearing from her, most feared she was dead. But Ruth's sister-in-law, Carol Terry, wondered if maybe she had joined witness protection. What gave her that idea, I don't know, but it turns out it wasn't as far-fetched as it might have first seemed. Once Ruth was finally identified nearly 50 years after being found dead and mutilated on the beach in Provincetown, police quickly determined she had been married to Moldavin at the time of her death. And it took barely the tiniest little scratch of the surface for police to find out that Moldavin was, in fact, a grade-A piece of human shit with a past that could inspire several episodes of Law & Order. It turns out Ruth's husband, Guy Rockwell Moldavin, also went by the names Raul Guy Rockwell and Guy Moldavin Rockwell because when you're picking an alias, it's smart to just scramble your actual names around. Police will never know. Unlike Ruth's rather impoverished childhood filled with instability, Moldavin, it seems, grew up in a pretty sheltered and privileged life. He was born in 1927 and was adopted by Abram Albert Zadorensky Moldavin and Sylvia Lily Silverblatt. Together with his brother, the family traveled a lot during Moldavin's youth, and when he wasn't traveling the world, Moldavin went to school in Switzerland, Connecticut, and New York, and was tutored privately on his family's cattle ranch in Ribera, New Mexico, according to a piece from the United Press International Archives from 1960. Why, you might be asking, was there a news article about Moldavin in 1960? I'm so glad you did. Let's get into it, shall we? Moldavin was married to a woman named Joe Ellen Loop Rockwell in the 40s and 50s. Moldavin and Joe Ellen ran an antique shop in Seattle that was, for some reason, only open from the hours of 6 p.m. to midnight. The shop wasn't financially successful, as I'm sure you can imagine, but Rocky, as Moldavin was known at the time, was well-liked. According to the piece in the New York Daily News from 1961, quote, real art lovers, and Seattle has many, appreciated him as a man of culture who was able to make a little knowledge, a quick wit, a retentive memory, and a glib tongue go a long way, end quote. 
The couple had been running the shop for about 10 years when one evening a woman named Manzanita and her then-husband came in. As the Daily News told it, Rocky and Manzi hit it off immediately. Within a few months, the antique dealer told his wife to clear out of the shop, that he was through with her. The ultimatum delivered without warning and in the presence of customers. Quote, It was one of the cruelest things I ever saw, one of the witnesses later told police. End quote. Charming. But it turns out Joe Ellen was lucky to have just been publicly humiliated. Manzanita would not be so lucky. Manzanita, along with her teenage daughter Dolores, moved into Moldavan's home slash antique shop. But three years into the marriage, in 1959, Moldavan met a young woman named Evelyn Emerson and decided that he now liked her better. Apparently, Manzanita knew history was repeating itself, this time not in her favor. However, through some agreement, she and Dolores continued living in the apartment above the antique shop, even though Moldavan was courting Emerson. Manzanita and her daughter traveled to Vancouver once a month so that Dolores could visit with her father. However, in the spring of 1960, when the two women had failed to show up, Manzanita's ex-husband finally reported them as missing. Apparently, it took three missed visits before he came forward. It seems when Manzanita left him for Moldavan, she didn't include him in her plans. So when she and her daughter suddenly vanished from Vancouver, he filed a missing persons report only to find out his wife and child weren't missing. They just left him and were perfectly happy living with a new man in Seattle. So it's understandable that it took him a minute to report them this time. Lord only knows where or with whom they'd be found this time. Finding out they were living with yet another man would have, I'm sure, been more welcome than what he would eventually learn. According to the Daily News, the detective assigned to the case found Moldavan, quote, testy and uncooperative. The antique dealer said he had no idea where the girls were, unquote. Manzanita's employers reported that she hadn't come to work since April 1st and that they hadn't heard from her at all in the ensuing four months. Meanwhile, Dolores had apparently stopped attending her college classes in March of that year. With no one knowing where Manzanita was, Moldavan filed for divorce on the grounds that he'd been deserted. He married Evelyn Emerson and then swindled her stepmother, a prominent socialite in Seattle, out of 10 grand with the stated intention of buying antiques in Canada and selling them for a quick profit. Rather than going to Canada, however, Moldavan took off with yet another woman, Mrs. Irene Gregory, who was apparently already married to someone else and headed down to San Francisco. Mrs. Gregory would eventually tell police that she spent two nights in August with Moldavan at a hotel in San Francisco before going to see a doctor, apparently at Moldavan's request. God only knows what that was actually about. The doctor, it turns out, didn't exist, and when she returned to the hotel, Moldavan was gone. Meanwhile, back in Seattle, his actual wife, Evelyn Emerson's stepmother, was like, uh, where's my money, bro, and filed charges against Moldavan. And in Vancouver, Manzanita's ex-husband was like, uh, where's my daughter, bro, and started loudly suspecting foul play. So Moldavan did what any good upstanding person would do. 
he turned himself in. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The guy was not done yet. He started going by the name Michael Strong, flew to Reno, bought a sports car, and drove across the country to Provincetown, Massachusetts, where his parents had apparently bought property in the 40s and 50s, and where he passed himself off as a journalist from Vancouver. Man, the world before the internet was a fucking wild place. From Provincetown, Moldavan went to New York City for a nose job. I swear you can't make this shit up. And then drove down to Key West and then back to New York City for another nose job. Now, with his new nose and new identity, he signed a three-year lease for an apartment in Greenwich Village. And then, in August of 1960, police in Seattle were still searching for Manzanita and Dolores when, according to the Daily News, at the house Moldavan had shared with Manzanita and Dolores, they, quote, noticed fresh concrete ceiling on the septic tank. They broke in and found human flesh and bones, some of it seared by flames, which Dr. Gail Wilson King, a pathologist, said were those of a girl 16 to 20. And in the Columbia River, a few hundred miles from Seattle, mutilated portions of a human body believed to be that of Manzanita were recovered by authorities, end quote. That's right, strangers. Apparently, he murdered and mutilated his wife and stepdaughter and dumped them in a septic tank and in the river. This fucking guy. But, of course, Moldavan was like, what? Who? Where? Golly gee, not me, officer. And the police were like, you know, we actually don't have any evidence. And they dropped the charges. Moldavan was, however, charged for grand larceny for the $10,000 he'd stolen from his mother-in-law and sentenced to 15 years in prison, for which he only served 13 months on the condition that he repay the money. If Moldavan had served that 15-year sentence, he wouldn't have been out until 1975. His whereabouts from 63 when he got out of prison to 74 when he married Ruth are murky. And don't forget, Ruth married him under a pseudonym. I don't know if that's because she was trying to distance herself from her own activities or if Moldavan suggested it, probably so that when he fucking murdered and mutilated her, it would be harder to connect her back to him. So, Ruth and Moldavan go to visit Ruth's family in Tennessee at some point in 73 or early 74. And then, on July 26, 1974, an unidentified woman shows up dead and mutilated in the dunes at Race Point Beach in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Moldavan, who Ruth's family had no idea had been suspected of murdering and mutilating his wife and stepdaughter, eventually assumed Ruth's disappearance was just her being a free spirit, and everyone went their own separate ways. But hold on, strangers, because it's about to get even fucking weirder. Eleven years after Ruth went missing and the Lady of the Dunes was discovered, in 1985, Moldavan popped up in the news again as the host of a radio show in Salinas, California called Talk to Me. 
The newspaper The Californian ran a profile on Moldavan in which, quote, the reporter noted that Moldavan, then working as a clerk at a local tobacco shop, tackled topics on his show such as, quote, the erosion of culture and his belief that killing has become a habit, end quote. He told the Californian various stories about his past, including that he'd worked with youth through the Santa Monica PD and that he'd worked as a buyer for major department stores and in the recording industry. He also said he believed war, discrimination and world hunger could be ended if people simply believed hard enough. I mean, if you're a dude who clearly got away with murdering two people and had by that point likely murdered a third, I'm sure you think you can believe your way out of anything. The article didn't mention his criminal past, which is remarkable. One would think, even without the help of Google, doing a quick background check on the guy would have raised some serious red flags. Even without his criminal past, the guy didn't come off as a Boy Scout. Apparently, in 1976, two years after his fourth wife, Ruth, went missing, he wrote a cookbook called Cooking with Rump Oil, including a recipe for something called Cape Cod Shid, which reads, in part, Out of the water and into the pan, the sweet turpentine taste will turn to that of a burnt glove, and the tender look will become one of despair. I don't... I mean... What can I say, stranger? It's... I can't. Moldavan died in 2002, and his obituary listed him as an artist, actor, and poet, and that he was survived by his wife, Phyllis. It did not mention that Phyllis was his fifth wife, or that two of his previous wives and a stepdaughter had disappeared under mysterious circumstances, or that he was a prime suspect in the murder of his second wife and stepdaughter. And here I am, worried that a waiter I undertipped 20 years ago will make it into my obituary. Also missing from his obituary was this nugget. In addition to the three people with whom he was intimately connected who mysteriously disappeared from Moldavan's life, two other people who likely crossed paths with Moldavan had also gone missing and were found murdered way back in 1950. Before moving to Seattle and opening the nighttime antique shop, Moldavan lived in Humboldt County, California, where he worked as a short order cook at a restaurant owned by his first wife, Ellen Jo Loop's father. According to a piece in the Bellingham Herald in September of 1960, the body of a missing truck driver, Henry Baird, quote, was found on June 19, 1950, near Table Bluff, a naval radio station in the Fortuna area. He had been shot in the back of the head. The body was naked except for shoes and socks. The rest of the clothes were piled neatly nearby. A 32 caliber pistol, the caliber with which he was shot, was missing from the car, end quote. Baird apparently had last been seen the previous Saturday night with a 17-year-old waitress named Barbara Kelly, who was never seen again. However, her clothes were found neatly piled underneath Baird's clothes. Kelly had been a waitress at the other restaurant Moldavan's father-in-law owned. 
At a press conference, Cape and Island's DA Michael O'Keefe was asked if Moldavan might have been a serial killer, to which he replied, quote, I would only say that's something that we're certainly looking at, end quote. And look, I'm no law enforcement person, but if it walks like a serial killer and quacks like a serial killer, you know what I mean? If I find a bunch of little colored tinfoil balls on the floor throughout my house leading right to my son's bedroom where there's a handprint of chocolate on his bed and his face is covered in chocolate, sure, he's going to say he didn't eat all the Hershey's Kisses, but come on. You have to get up pretty early to steal this bird's worm. Actually, I sleep pretty late, so you'd have plenty of time to steal my worm. I know we're not supposed to throw around accusations and everyone is innocent until proven guilty. That is, unless you're a young black man walking down the street with a bag of Skittles, a cell phone or a violin case, or a black woman sleeping in her own bed at night or playing video games with her nephew or driving with a missing taillight. But even if somehow all these horrific things just seemed to happen around this guy and he was 100% innocent of murder, he was still, obviously, a shitty dude. One can only imagine how his last wife must have felt when she found all this out about her dearly departed husband. And this is why, stranger, when you're going on a date with a new person, you send a picture of their ID to a couple friends along with their phone number and license plate. You Google them first, just to make sure they're not, you know, Guy Rocky Moldavan. Listen, as someone who has had a divorce, I can say it's embarrassing, sure. But you know what I bet is way more embarrassing? Being a serial killer. Perhaps Moldavan had met someone new he decided he liked better, and he never learned how to just say, I'd like a divorce. Wherever this shit stain went, tragedy followed. While Ruth Marie Terry's life was certainly not devoid of its own tragedy, who knows what might have become of her if she hadn't crossed paths with Moldavan. She may have found a better path, or at the very least avoided an untimely fate at the hands of a serial killer. And most certainly, she deserved a better end to her story than what she got. As it stands, we will likely never know the details of how she ended up naked, mutilated, and dead on that Provincetown beach in 1974. Or how it could be that no one in Provincetown remembered seeing her. Just as her story dipped in and out of the public record in life, the details of her murder remain hazy and filled with gaps. One certainty we do know is that she spent time with Guy Rocky Moldavan. But it's important to remember that a scumbag like that should not be what defines her story, even if he may have had a hand in ending it. Next time on Strange and Unexplained... In the mid-1800s, a specter was going around London and its suburbs, terrorizing whoever it came across. No one knows who he was or why he did it, but the legend of Spring-Heeled Jack lives on. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. 
This episode was produced by Natalie Grillo, Becca D. Gregorio, and Angela Palladino, and written by me, Daisy Egan, with research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but if there's a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash The Proud Boys Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNU Pod and check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation.